Ruth chapter 4, let's hear God's word beginning with verse 9. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house, like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Ruth chapter 4. Let's once again ask for God's help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us now as we come to your word to really see, to understand, to perceive, to receive by faith with meekness this word which is able to save our souls, which is able to build us up, make us wise unto salvation, Give us an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Father, we ask that you would help us to truly hear, to truly believe, and then also, Lord, to put into practice your calling upon us from this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully by now everybody remembers the plot of the book of Ruth. The main characters are all mentioned here. Naomi and Elimelech moved to Moab with their children, Malon and Kilian. Malon and Kilian got married while they were in Moab, but Elimelech, Malon, and Kilian died. So Naomi went back to Bethlehem, and one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, came back with her. Ruth met Boaz. Ruth suggested to Boaz that he should marry her, and he is now in process of doing that. He's rescuing Naomi's land, Elimelech's land, really, from whoever had been using it while they were gone in Moab those ten long years. And he is marrying Ruth. Now, one of the things that is a little bit strange to us is what's said there, that a son is born to Naomi. Or when Boaz says that he is going to raise up seed to Elimelech. Well, this is due to the clan or tribal structure that was present in Israel at that time where the deceased could have a child that wasn't biologically his, but that would count 
for his in the genealogical register where his line would continue. So here you have what you could maybe call a double substitution. Boaz is substituting for Elimelech. Elimelech had Malon and Kilion, but they all died. So Boaz will replace Elimelech. But Naomi is past childbearing years. So Ruth will stand in for Naomi. And in this way, that particular family line will be perpetuated. We don't tend to put too much importance, or that, at least not that much importance, on family lines. But this was very significant to them at the time. Now, that's the basic plot. That's what's happening. But what's the meaning? Why is that story worth recording in Scripture? Well, you'll notice in the portion that we read, there's blessing. There's a blessing pronounced on Boaz. There's a blessing pronounced on Naomi. And then it's not couched exactly in these terms, but the book ends with the word David. There's a blessing for Israel. There's a blessing for the people of God. Obviously, by the time the book is written, David has come. But from the standpoint of the view of the book, the time frame in which the book takes place, David is future. But David is a future of blessing. David is a man after God's own heart. So those are the things who will rule over the people. So those are the things that give us our outline for today. Blessing for Naomi, blessing, or excuse me, blessing for Boaz, blessing for Naomi, and then blessing for Israel, blessing for the people of God. So the elders and the people who are gathered at the gate as legal witnesses of this transaction whereby Boaz acquires the right to Elimelech's property and to Ruth as wife, they respond to that by saying, we are witnessing, and then they pronounce a blessing on Ruth. It's in Boaz's presence, which is why it's included there, the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. Now, if you don't remember who they were, of course, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Rachel and Leah were Jacob's two wives from Rachel and Leah and their handmaidens. From those four women were born the 12 sons who became the basis for the 12 tribes of Israel. So what are they saying when they're saying, may the Lord make this woman like Rachel and Leah? Well, they're saying, let her be at the start, at the root of something amazing. Let her be at the beginning of your family flourishing. You remember, Abraham had these amazing promises of enormous descendants, but he only had one child of promise, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah struggled with fertility issues and ultimately had two sons, twins, one of whom disqualified himself from the line of promise. So by the time that you've got Jacob, people might be wondering, is God's promise going to be fulfilled one child at a time? How is that going to lead to descendants as the sand on the seashore or as the stars in the sky? Well, then Jacob has 12 sons. Okay, now you feel like we're getting somewhere. Now the promise is starting to operate. And, of course, those 12 sons and their descendants explode so that 600,000 men, adult men, leave Egypt those couple hundred years, several hundred years later, but from 12 to 600,000, that's significant increase. So they're saying, let Ruth be like that. Let her be like the start of that. 
And so he says, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Now, it's hard to pick up on that in the translation here, but do you remember I made a big deal out of Boaz being a man of virtue in chapter 2? And then I made a big deal out of him saying to Ruth that she was a virtuous woman. Well, when it says prosper, it's that same word for do well, for do worthily, for do virtuously. That key word is coming up again. Ruth and Boaz have both demonstrated this virtuous, upright character. Well, part of the blessing is not just increase. Part of the blessing is not just children. Part of the blessing is good behavior, uprightness. And we should see that as a gift, shouldn't we? When we are enabled to act with integrity, when we are enabled to show steadfast love, when we're enabled to meet our responsibility, that is a blessing. That is a gift from God, and it's a very desirable gift from God. This is something that's worth putting into your prayers for yourself and for other people. Enable me to do worthily. Enable me to do what I should. Now, we certainly would like prosperity to come along with that. I'm not against prosperity. But we should never sacrifice integrity for prosperity. That would be wrong. Well, we need the Lord to keep us on a straight and narrow in that regard. And they say to be famous in Bethlehem. In other words, to be well-known. Or I think even better would be not just notoriety. I mean, how many people in our world right now are well-known? but not for anything good. That's not what they're talking about. They don't want Boaz to be a household word because of how awful he is, because of the notorious things he's done in front of the TV camera. They want him to be respected. Well, there's a big difference between being famous and being respected. Now, you might be well-known and respected, but a lot of people are just famous or notorious, and yet they're not The blessing here is focused more on the respect side of that equation. And they go on. May your house be like the house of parents from Tamar or to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now here it's very clear what they're driving at. They are invoking the blessing of fertility on Ruth. They want her union with Boaz to be fruitful to result in children as in fact It did. But there's another illusion here. May your house be like the house of Perez. Now, Perez is going to come up again in the genealogy, but Perez is not one of the better-known figures from the Old Testament. If you're not sure who he is, I can understand that. This is an allusion to Genesis chapter 38. Now, in Genesis, it's interesting. You have the story of Joseph, and the story of Joseph really kicks off in chapter 37, And then chapter 38 is not about Joseph. And then in chapter 39, you get back to Joseph. In between, there's chapter 38, which is probably nobody's favorite chapter in the book of Genesis. You remember what happens in Genesis 38? Well, I'm not going to summarize it all. But Judah, another one of the sons of Jacob, he has a wife. And he has three sons. And he finds a Canaanite young lady named Tamar for the first of those sons. Now, we don't know more about this than this. We're just told that Ur, E-R, that's how you spell it, that was the name of his firstborn son, that he was wicked, so God killed him. Okay. 
Well, now you have a young widow. And according to the, the conventions, according to the customs of society, then the next brother in line was supposed to marry her, and the first child would be in his brother's name. Well, he didn't want to do that. He didn't follow through with that, so God killed him too. Well, now Judah's worried. He's lost two sons. He's noticed a pattern here. He's got another son. Son's next in line. But he's saying, you go back and live with your dad while he grows up. Apparently he was a little young. But nothing happens, and nothing happens, and nothing happens. And the boy's all grown up, and Tamar is still left as a widow in her father's house. So she comes up with a clever plan. She disguises herself, and she seduces Judah, and she becomes impregnated by him. And then they say to him, hey, your daughter-in-law has been running around. And he says, oh, okay, well, let's have her burned. Well, she was smart enough. She kept his staff, and she kept his seal. And so she sent those to him by a messenger and said, the man to whom these belong is the father of the child. Well, now what's Judah going to do? She's caught him. She's trapped him. So he said, okay, we're not going to burn her after all. That is where Perez came from. Because Tamar had twins, Perez and Hezron. And this is the blessing that is invoked on Boaz. Now, if you're all scratching your heads and thinking, why in the world would this be the family we're referencing? And they, they specifically reference it whom Tamar bore to Judah. I mean, they know the story. They know what happened. Is that what your family will look like? That's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, we do not want the families in the church to look like this. We don't want that kind of behavior going on around here. Why did they reference that one? Well, I think there's a couple of things that you could say about that. One is... This was an instance of somebody standing in for somebody else. Judah was taking the place of his own son. That wasn't ideal. That wasn't how all of this was supposed to work. But it was an instance where Boaz is representing Elimelech. Well, Judah was representing the line of his son, so to speak. So that may be something that jogs their memory, that brings it up to mind. But here's a deeper reason. Here's a greater principle. What part of that was good? Well, really, no part of that was good. But God brought something good out of it. Well, you could go back. You could look at Jacob's household. I mean, he thinks he's marrying Rachel, and he gets Leah instead. So then he marries Rachel, too. And then those two are in such fierce competition as to see who can have more babies. They bring their handmaidens into it. That's not good either. That's not how we want people to behave. But God brought the 12 tribes of Israel out of it. So what is the story here? Well, it wasn't intrinsically good that Elimelech and Malon and Kilion all died. And it wasn't good that they all died before Ruth or Orpah had had children. That's a tragedy. That's a sad thing. But through Boaz, through Ruth, God is going to bring something good out of all that tragedy all the same. And so they bless Boaz and his union with Ruth in these terms where we're reminded, where we remember that God brings good out of misery, out of tragedy, and yes, even out of sin. Now that doesn't excuse sin. That doesn't make sin non-sinful. 
It just means that God overruled for good. But that is a comfort. That is a blessing. If God didn't overrule sin for good, well then, it was sinful to crucify Jesus. Unless God overruled for good, that would not have worked for our redemption. That would not have led to the resurrection and the ascension. So we can be very thankful that God brings good out of evil, that God overrules even sin. Well, apply that to redemption, of course, in the case of Christ, it's clear, but apply that to yourself. Apply that to your own life. If God couldn't bring good about in your life, in spite of your sins, overruling even your sins for good, well, what hope would you have? Where would you be? Unless God overrules to bring good out of evil, there won't be any good for us to experience because we're characterized by evil. We're conceived and born in sin. So this is a very important lesson for us to take away from this particular portion. Okay, moving on to the blessing for Naomi after Boaz and Ruth have gotten married and she's given birth to a son, the women of the village come and say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And remember that close relative, that is a redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life. Now here in the blessing on Naomi, there's also a couple of key words from the book of Ruth. One is that word, close relative or redeemer. This is somebody who rescues Naomi. Now, Boaz had acted to rescue or redeem her property, but who is Naomi's redeemer in the book of Ruth? Well, you can give a couple of answers. You could say, well, in one sense, it was Boaz. In this blessing, the women identify the redeemer as Obed, as the baby. The baby's the redeemer here. And of course, in another way, you could say, well, Ruth is the redeemer. Ruth, I mean, without Ruth, none of this is possible, right? And that's why they say that she's better than seven sons. The variety shows that all of these people who can be said to redeem are pointing to something greater. Who is Naomi's redeemer? It's the Lord. The Lord whose hand had been heavy against her? Yes. The Lord who she thought had brought her into such bitterness that her very name should change, that she shouldn't be called Naomi or Pleasant anymore. She should be called Mara or Bitter. And the reason she gave was that the Lord's hand had been heavy against her. That Lord, the Lord whom she thought of as afflicting her, as ruining or embittering her life, that Lord was her Redeemer. Now, he worked through people, absolutely, but behind it is the Lord. One of the ways you can see that is that in the book of Ruth, there are only two things that the narrator says God does. Other people talk about God, but the storyteller, who's writing this book, that person only says that God does two things directly. Verse 6 of chapter 1, the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread and then chapter 4, verse 13, speaking of Ruth, the Lord gave her conception. 
Who provides food? The Lord. Who gives children? The Lord. This was a big deal in Israel. They were constantly tempted by the Canaanites around them to worship and serve the fertility god and goddess, Baal and his consort, because they were the ones who were conceived of as blessing the crops and making them grow, giving food. They were the ones who were conceived of as blessing the family and making it increase through children. They were the ones conceived of as blessing the herds and making the the cattle and the sheep and the goats multiply as well. Well, Ruth is very clear. It's not Baal. It's not Baal's consort. It's not, you know, the Canaanite pantheon. It's the Lord who gives those things. It's the Lord who provides food. It's the Lord who gives conception. So Naomi has been blessed by God. He has redeemed her. Now, when they say, may Obed be to you a restorer of life, that's another key word. It's the word for return. In chapter 1, Naomi set out to return to Bethlehem. And now God has returned her life to her. He's given her her life back, her joy back, her hope back, her future back. And so Naomi, as a loving grandmother, takes this child. This child is there in in patriarchal terms, in tribal terms, to replace what she had lost. And I understand, you know, one, one child does not substitute for another, but she had nothing, and now she has Obed. She said that she went out full and the Lord brought her back empty. But the Lord has been filling Naomi up all along through Ruth, through Boaz, through Obed. It says in the book of Joel, the Lord gives the promise that he'll restore the years that the locust has eaten. That's what we see happening with Naomi here. She did lose a lot. I hope we never lose as much as she did. But the Lord is able to restore. The Lord is able to fill us up again. Because he's the true redeemer. He's the source of blessing. Other people are pronouncing the blessing. But where are they coming from? And of course, all of that turned into David. Where God raised up a king over his people who would be a demonstration. Who would be a little enactment of what the Lord Jesus is for all of us. So what's the privilege? What's the blessing here? Well, Naomi and Ruth get to be the ancestors or ancestresses, I should say, of the Messiah. Ruth was not empty. Ruth was, or Naomi wasn't empty. She was part of building the kingdom of God in a very direct and immediate way. Well, we may lose other things. We may not have everything that others have. But if the Lord gives us the privilege of being united to Christ, if the Lord gives us the privilege of participating in the work of his kingdom, can we really say that we're empty? Can we really say that we have nothing? I don't think we can. There's a word of application here. One there's a very positive commendation. How is Naomi filled? Well, she's filled through agriculture that sustains her physical needs. 
and she's built through family, through childbirth, that matches her emotionally. So on the one hand, we should learn from this that agriculture, marriage, and family are blessings. They are blessings from God. They are blessings that are worth seeking and pursuing. Never look down on those things. Never denigrate them. Never think, oh, you know, people who just do that, that's no big deal. (laughs) That is a pretty big deal. That is very significant. That is very valuable. That is wonderful. Not everybody is called to serve God in those ways. And if you're not called to serve God through agriculture, marriage, and family, childbirth, well, God has other callings. You can think about the prophets. Isaiah was married. His wife was called the prophetess. He had multiple children. Jeremiah was told, you will not have a wife or children in this place. Ezekiel was married, and his wife died, and as far as we know, no children. Daniel, some people think that he may have been turned into a eunuch in order to serve the king of Babylon. We certainly read nothing about him having a wife or children. Well, there's four prophets, somewhat different path in life, but all obedient to God's calling. If God allowed Isaiah to contribute through marriage and family, through children, and did not allow Jeremiah to contribute in that way, well, that was God's prerogative. Do we look down on Jeremiah? Do we say, ah, he's not as good as Isaiah on that account? I hope not. But vice versa, do we say, you know what? Isaiah wasn't really as committed as Jeremiah. I mean, I had this whole domestic side of life, whereas Jeremiah was really on fire for We don't say that either. Hopefully, hopefully we're not that dense. Hopefully we recognize that God has a multiplicity of blessings to give. Not having any of those blessings can absolutely be a hardship. But the blessings aren't the only indication of God's favor. And whatever we're called to, God blesses us in that calling. That calling will have its special difficulties and problems. God blesses us in it. So on the one hand, from Ruth, we absolutely learn, don't despise children. Obed was a restorer of life to Naomi. What a gift. What a blessing. What a wonderful thing. And Obed wouldn't have been there if Boaz and Ruth hadn't gotten married. That's all good. That's all fantastic. But it's not the calling that is given to everyone. And if it's not your particular calling, you don't need to be discouraged. You don't need to feel run down. You don't need to feel like, well, God has reserved his best gifts for somebody else. The best gift is Christ. And Christ is held out to all of us. He is the restorer of life. He is the nourisher of our old age, but of everything that leads up to old age as well. Jesus is the child of promise. Jesus is the gift we need. Amen.